Amen. Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a blue one in front of you that you're welcome to use. And you can find Acts chapter 2 on page 1008. 1008. We're in Acts chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 22 to 38 this morning. So I'll give you a second to turn there. We got lots of good stuff to talk about this morning. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 22. Hear the word of the Lord. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus. Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad. And my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David. That he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, for followers of Jesus, this morning is the biggest day on our calendars. There is no more important event in the history of the world than the resurrection of the Son of God. And as I reflected on that this week, two recent conversations really helped me think through what it is we're doing this morning. Both of these conversations took place with those who don't follow Jesus. But these conversations really helped me key in on 
what's going on this morning as we celebrate? First one was a conversation that my wife got to have with a little girl recently. The little girl didn't really know anything about Jesus or the gospel. And as Emily was explaining that on Good Friday, we celebrate that Jesus died for our sins, the little girl said something really profound and really powerful. When Emily told her that Jesus had died, this little girl looked at Emily and said, so no more Jesus? I mean, you said he died, so, that, so there's no more Jesus? And if you're a follower of Jesus, I want that to land on you for a second. Just imagine that for a moment. What if Good Friday was the end of the story? What if there was no more Jesus? No more Jesus means no more forgiveness. No more eternal life. No more hope. No more knowing God. But just at this point, where I'm sure in this little girl's mind, she's saying, that's horrible. Thankfully, it was at just this moment that my little evangelist daughter, Nora, piped up. When the little girl said, so there's no more Jesus? Nora, in her little sing-song voice, said, but he didn't stay dead. <laughs> Jesus woes back to life. And I thought, yes, that's what we're celebrating. Because on Friday, it seemed like there was no more Jesus. But on Sunday, everything changed. Because he rose from the dead. He said that he died and is now alive forevermore. So Easter changed everything from no more Jesus to forevermore Jesus. Everything hinged on that morning. So that's what we're celebrating. Now the second conversation was when Pastor Ben and I were talking to a lady recently and I was explaining once again to her how we celebrate Jesus' death on Good Friday for our sins and then on Sunday we celebrate how he rose again to conquer death. And the woman asked innocently, she said, okay, so, so what do you do differently on Easter? And as I thought about it, on one hand I told her, well, nothing. Because we always love to talk about and celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection. So in one sense, Easter for us is gloriously the same as any Lord's Day that we gather here. But in another sense, it is different. So what I, what I told her was, I guess the difference is we're just a little louder that day. <laughs> and what I meant was we sing with a little more gusto. We rejoice a little more deeply. We hope a little stronger and we lean in and drink a little deeper of these streams of living water. Because this morning, we focus our hearts on the most important reality in the universe for us. Jesus is alive. And as I considered what to preach this morning, since we've been walking through the book of 1 Peter together here, it got me thinking, what would Peter preach on Easter? What would he want to share? Well, we don't have an Easter sermon from Peter, but we do have Acts chapter 2, where in his first sermon that he preached just seven weeks after the resurrection, so less than two months later, Peter's preaching our text today. This is the first recorded message from a preacher about what happened on Good Friday and Easter Sunday. So let me set the scene before we jump into it. 
Peter and the apostles, they're still in Jerusalem. Jesus had told them to wait there until the Holy Spirit had come upon them. And on the day that happened, the day the Holy Spirit comes, there's quite a stir. As the disciples start telling the mighty works of God to all these visitors in town from all over that part of the world. They start telling them about Jesus and what God has done in their own languages. So this raises some questions. People are confused about what is happening here. So Peter stands up to explain what's going on. And already we know that the resurrection has changed something because the Peter who stands up to address these multitudes is the same Peter who was so cowardly he denied knowing Jesus to a little servant girl just seven weeks earlier. But now he says, you want to know about Jesus? Let me tell you. So after he explains to the people what it is they're seeing, that he says it's the pouring out of God's spirit, just as he promised. That's up in verses 13 to 21. Peter then gets to the heart of his message, and he begins to proclaim the Jesus who is doing the pouring out of his spirit. And what Peter wants them to know, that the aim of his message that morning was simple. He wants them to know who this Jesus really is. See, these people have been hanging out in Jerusalem. There's a lot of crazy stuff had gone on the last couple months there. So they've probably heard a lot about Jesus in the last couple months. They've heard stories and rumors and accounts and some were more true than others. But he wants them to know who this Jesus truly is. In fact, if you look down at your Bibles, you see this phrase, this Jesus, three times in our passage. Verse 23, this Jesus, verse 32, this Jesus, and verse 36, this Jesus. So just like the crowd that day, my guess is in this room, we've all heard lots of things about a Jesus in our lifetimes. Some have been true. Hopefully many have been true, but some haven't been. Some have been distortions. Some have been just corruptions of the truth. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to let Peter show us who this Jesus really is. So here's our headers this morning. We've got three main points. First, we're going to see that this Jesus is the authenticated son and crucified savior. Then we'll see that this Jesus is the risen Christ. And then this Jesus is the reigning Lord. Okay, so let's jump in and let's see what Peter has to say about this Jesus. Look back at verse 22. He starts off this part. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. He's like, hey, listen up, everybody. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Let's stop there. Now there is a lot jam-packed into these two verses, but I'm just going to point out a few things to help us get some handles on this Jesus. First, notice that we see his incarnation. You see that? This Jesus, it says, was a man. He's not a mystical force. He's not a superhero. This Jesus was a man. Though he was fully God as the second person of the Trinity, he took on flesh and also became 
fully man. As fully God and fully man, he came to earth as one of us. If we passed him on the street back then, nothing about him would have made us stop in our tracks and say, that's something different. He looked like one of us. He lived in our world with a human body. He got hungry and cold and tired. He felt joy and he felt sorrow. He had friends. He even had a hometown. Do you see that in the text? He was Jesus of Nazareth. That's where he's from. So the first thing we see right out of the gate is this Jesus that we worship is a man. But he's not just any man. It says that he was a man attested by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. So what does that mean? What does it mean to be attested by God? Well, what it means is that as God was doing these mighty works, these miracles, all the stuff you've read about in your Bibles, the things that Jesus did, as God was doing those miracles through Jesus, what God was doing was he was endorsing and verifying, confirming, and authenticating that this Jesus was in fact the Son of God. If you think about it this way, you know how like in a spy movie, there's usually, they got some secret hideout, some way they got to get into it, and they have to authenticate you before you can get in there. There's these layers of security. So first, they might have to be a handprint, does this fancy thing, and then they do a retina scan, and then you have to speak, and they do a voice authentication. What are they doing? Well, all these things are designed to prove and verify this person is who they say they are. They don't just let anybody walk in and say, yeah, I work for the CIA. Yeah, come on in. No, no, they, they, they verify you. They authenticate you. They want to see that you're the real match. Well, in the same way, what we see here is the miracles that God did through Jesus, they were meant to serve the same purpose. They were meant to verify and authenticate that Jesus really was the Messiah, God's promised Savior King. See, just like we can look at a fingerprint and we can say, okay, I know that that must be Dan because that fingerprint only belongs to Dan. So if that fingerprint's somewhere, Dan was there. That's him. Well, in the same way, the works that Jesus did were designed by God for us to look at them and say, okay, those things, only the Son of God can do those things. So if I see the the fingerprint, so to speak, of the Son of God, that must mean that this Jesus is the Son of God. So when Jesus walked on water, when he healed the sick and the paralyzed, when he raised the dead, caused the blind to see, calmed the storm, cast out demon and feeds 5,000, what you need to know is those weren't just cool tricks to entertain the crowds. It wasn't just like, do you want to go see a movie tonight or do you want to see this Jesus guy do some miracles? They weren't entertainment. Nor were they simply acts of kindness to help people out. They often did that But that wasn't their point. They were proofs. They were verifications that God used to attest to the fact that this Jesus, he's my son. He's my Christ. Now something else we see here in this passage is that this authenticated Jesus, he was unavoidable and undeniable. Notice how Peter describes God's proving of Jesus here. He says, this Jesus was attested to you. He's speaking to his audience. He says, 
It wasn't just he was attested in general. He was attested to you by God. Then he goes on. God did all these signs in your midst. Not somewhere far off that you didn't hear about. It was right in the middle of you. Then he says, as you yourselves know. He's making it unambiguously clear. In other words, these people, they were confronted by the reality of who Jesus is. It was inescapable. They had seen and heard too much to pretend like they didn't know there was something different about this Jesus. He's saying, no way. You know what he's done. You know what he claimed. So they knew this Jesus demanded their attention. But even though the people had been confronted by this authenticated and undeniable Jesus, they didn't like him. It wasn't as though when they saw these proofs, they said, oh, finally, he's here. Quite the opposite. This Jesus made them uncomfortable. This Jesus challenged the way they were living. This Jesus demanded to not not simply have their obedience, He demanded to have their hearts. He made them feel exposed in their sin. All that guilt and shame that they had spent a lifetime crafting the perfect cover-ups and concealments so that nobody would see it. Somehow when they were around this Jesus, they couldn't hide it from him. And that's why they hated him. Because the light had come into the world and they loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. The Bible says that's true of all of us. We've all been confronted. Now, Jesus hasn't physically walked around your neighborhood. But friends, the fact that you're here today, he's made himself inescapable. If you've never heard his name before, after you leave this morning, you will no longer be able to say, I had no idea who this Jesus was. And so the point is that as you've seen him, what will you do with him? The Bible says that at one point, all of us loved the darkness rather than the light. All of us rejected Jesus because we know that what we're doing is wrong, but we don't want to stop. Because at least I get to be in control. At least I get to be in charge. And if this Jesus starts telling me what to do, I don't don't like that. It got to a point where something had to go. Either our sinful lives with us at the center or this Jesus. And the Bible says we all chose this Jesus. That's why Peter says to us, you crucified and killed him. This Jesus that God had shown and proven to be his son and his chosen king, we killed. Friends, this was the worst crime imaginable. Like we love to watch these documentaries about true crime and just marvel at the heinousness of it. This was treason of the highest order. And like all heinous crimes, it carried with it the death penalty. All of us deserve to die for rejecting God's right rule over us and our complicity in the murder of his son. But here's where things get incredible. Because the good news of the gospel is that when Jesus was crucified on the cross, he not only died as a result of our wickedness, but for our wickedness. He died in our place 
to pay for the wrongs we have done. The very ones who nailed him to the tree, he was dying for them. The God of ages stepped down from history to wear my sin and my shame, your sin and your shame, so that now because he died, we can be forgiven. There is no other way. No more guilt, no more shame. Jesus declared, it is finished. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, you say, I don't get it. There's so many hoops I got to jump through. Won't I just have to keep doing more and more and more? Hear Jesus say, it is finished. He has done all that needs to be done. All he asks you to do is trust him. Every sin has been paid for. And Christians, we need to hear that again this morning. The sin that you did this morning, the way you spoke sharply to your spouse on the way in here, the way you treated your coworker unkindly on Thursday, the way you blasted that person over email, the anger you felt, the envy you felt towards your neighbor, the disgust you felt, the way you spoke unkindly, all those sins, they're paid for. You don't have to carry them anymore. But notice, don't miss this. Notice too that even though it was us who killed and crucified this Jesus, he was also delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In other words, God planned the death of Jesus. Everything about that week, we just celebrated Holy Week, Everything about that week unfolded exactly as God sovereignly ordained it. In Acts 4.27, we read the words of the Christians there as they pray to God. They say, For truly in this city, in Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This is, a, this is a really critical part that we need to get about the story of Jesus' death and his crucifixion. We need to see that the death of Jesus wasn't an unexpected tragedy that caught God unawares. It wasn't as though he had sent his son and with him he expected everyone to roll out the red carpet and that that would usher in a new era of joy and peace and all of a sudden, oh no, what did they do? This wasn't a wrench in his plans that he suddenly had to figure out how to solve. The death of his son was God's plan. Which leaves us to say, why? Why would he do that? Why would he deliver up his own son? Romans 4 tells us he was delivered up for our trespasses. Friends, God gave his son to rescue and redeem you and me. To save the very ones who nailed his own beloved son to the tree. And what we need to see from these verses is that even on the darkest day of human history, God was firmly in control. He planned and used the worst thing imaginable the death of his son, to accomplish the greatest thing fathomable, our salvation. And the good news is that this same sovereign God, 
who was in control of every detail of that week, even the darkest day of human history, this same God is in control of your life too. And if you are in Christ, he is using even the absolute worst things in your life, the things that when I say that pop into your mind, That relationship, that job loss, that diagnosis, that suffering, that pain, whatever it is when I say the worst things in your life, the thing that floods in your mind, if you are in Christ, God is using even those to accomplish things for you and in you that are better than you can ever imagine, Christian. So take heart, because he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up, delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What we're meant to see is that this Jesus is the authenticated son and he's the crucified savior. But, as Nora reminded us, this Jesus, he didn't stay dead. Look at verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. On the third day, God raised Jesus back to life. And that phrase, loosing the pangs of death, is actually a really powerful one. See that word pangs there? It's the word that's almost always used for birth pains. You think, so how is this? What's he doing here? One commentator said the word picture here is that the grave can no more hold the redeemer than a pregnant woman can hold the child in her body. When it's time, that child is coming out and there's nothing she can do to stop it. And so it was with Jesus in the grave. When it was time, he was coming out and there was nothing the grave could do to stop him. He was unrestrainable. That's why he says it wasn't possible for him to be held by death. Not just that death didn't hold him. It wasn't possible. But why would Peter say that? What's his basis for making that claim that it wasn't possible for Jesus to be held by death? Well, we shouldn't be surprised that to reinforce his point here, Peter's going to use the Old Testament. If you've been tracking with us through the book of 1 Peter, do you remember what he said about those Old Testament scriptures? He said in 1 Peter 1, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them they were serving not themselves, but you. Peter already, if, we've been, if you've been tracking with us, we already know from his letter, Peter says, look, the Old Testament prophets, they were serving us by telling us about the coming Christ. So we shouldn't be surprised here that when Peter gives the reason why this Jesus couldn't be held by death, he says, let's go back to the Old Testament. So look at verse 25. Notice he starts with for. This is his reason. Why can't he be held by death? For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. 
You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So here what Peter's doing is he's quoting David's words from Psalm 16. That talk about how this person's soul would not be abandoned to Hades. They wouldn't see corruption in the grave. I mean, their body wouldn't rot there. It wouldn't be there long enough. So then what Peter does, I love this. This is good Bible study. Peter looks at that. He reads his Bible. He applies a little bit of theology and a whole lot of common sense. And look at verse 29. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. So you're tracking with Peter here? Peter's point is simple. He's, he's talking to this crowd and he says, guys, look, we all know David wrote these words, but not about himself. Because we all know David died and he's buried. In fact, his tomb's just up the road. If you guys want to go look at it, we can go see and make sure he's still there. So clearly, whatever these words are, they're not about him. Instead, he was prophesying about someone else. See, Peter knew that God had promised that one day, one of his descendants, one of his great, 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 great grandkids would sit on his throne forever as the Messiah King. And of that man's kingdom, there would be no end. And it is this coming Christ, this one that was promised, that's who he's speaking about. He wouldn't be the one who would not be abandoned in the grave. He would be the one whose flesh wouldn't have time to see corruption. So Peter's saying, look, who do you guys know who fits this description? This Jesus. This Jesus, he says, God raised up. His argument is, listen, the scriptures tell us the Christ will rise from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead. Therefore, Jesus is the Christ. It's a syllogism basically here. He's saying, just think about it with me. The promised son of David who would sit on David's throne. The Messiah who would come to set his people free and bring restoration and renewal. The one who would lead them to Zion and bring everlasting peace and joy. He says, this Jesus must be him because he raised from the dead just like scripture said he would. In case you're thinking, well, I don't know, maybe Peter got that one wrong. He, did, he has said a lot of things that he kind of put his foot in his mouth. Well, Peter's not the only one who saw this. Jesus himself said in Luke 24, he said, Thus it is written, where is it written? In the scriptures. It is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 4, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And in Acts 17, it says, just like it was Paul's custom, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, here's that phrase again, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you, 
is the Christ. They're all saying because Jesus is the Christ. Christ is another word for Messiah, the anointed one, the promised Savior King. Because Jesus is the Christ, it was impossible for the grave to hold him. Scripture said it wouldn't. He said we shouldn't be surprised. And because the grave didn't hold him, his resurrection proved he really is the Christ. No one else can lay claim to this title because no one else was dead, buried, and then rose back to life. This is what our faith hinges on. That this Jesus who died is not dead today. There is no one else from history, from even a hundred years ago, that we could say this of. Every other religious leader you can think of in history is dead. Every other general, every other king Every other politician, musician, writer, thinker, artist, everyone who's influenced human history is dead. But Jesus is alive. And because he's alive, we know that the payment for our sins was accepted. Because he's alive, we know that in him, we have the hope of eternal life. Because we're united By faith to him, it's not possible for us to be held by death either. Do you hear that? As strongly as it was for Jesus, it says it wasn't possible for death to hold him. Like death didn't have a chance against Jesus. And he's saying, hey, because we're united to him by faith, death doesn't have a chance against you either, Christian. Death has lost its grip on us and the grave has no claim on us. Christian, If Jesus doesn't come back first, all of us will die. We will. Whether you're young or old, whether you've thought about it, whether you try to ignore it, even if you're a follower of Jesus, you need to come to grips with the fact that if Jesus doesn't return first, you will die. But like this Jesus, Christian, You won't stay dead. You will be raised to life forevermore. And as it said from Psalm 16, you will be made full of gladness in God's presence forever. And we have this certainty. Why? Why can we be so absolutely certain that we too will rise? Because this Jesus, he's the risen Christ. But this Jesus is even more. Even more than the authenticated son, more than the crucified savior, more than the risen Christ, he's also the reigning Lord. Look at verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So after his resurrection, Jesus, it says, was exalted to the right hand of God. What does that mean? Well, the right hand of God is the place of authority and power. And we know from Matthew 28 that Jesus has now been given 
all authority in heaven and on earth. As Paul writes in Ephesians 1.20, God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. So after making this pronouncement, Peter does what he did last time. He again looks back and says, all right, let's go see what David had to say about this. This time he looks at Psalm 110. But his logic works basically the same. Peter looks at Psalm 110 and he says, look, David writes about this Lord who's at God's right hand. Well, we know David never ascended into heaven to sit there. So once again, he's got to be talking about someone else. And that someone else, Peter says, is this Jesus. He is the one who is ruling and reigning at the Father's right hand as King of kings and Lord of lords. All things are under his sovereign sway and there's not a molecule in the universe that he doesn't rule over. As Abraham Kuyper famously said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. On Friday, the world thought this Jesus was weak and helpless. They thought he'd been conquered and defeated. But it was precisely because of his humble death on the cross that therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's why Peter says in verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. Peter's saying the resurrection leaves no doubt, friends. We can know for certain that this Jesus who was crucified to save us from our sins is both the risen Christ and the reigning Lord. Which brings us to our last point. Now I said there were only three but those three points call for a fourth. I want you to notice that Peter's preaching a sermon here, right? So we can learn something from this. Notice what Peter doesn't do. Peter's sermon doesn't give them six steps to a better you. He doesn't lay out seven principles for wise living. What does he do? Peter simply shows them from Scripture who this Jesus is. And when the people hear who this Jesus is, they know this Jesus demands a response. He's not someone they can simply ignore. If you really see who this Jesus is, friends, you realize you have to do something with him. And that's exactly what the people here realize. Look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, when they heard Peter say who this Jesus is, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter had, had laid out, This is the reigning Christ. 
This is the risen Lord. He's, this is the, the God of all things. And he says, and remember, you crucified and killed him. So they, they are undone. They're cut to the heart. They realize, you're absolutely right, Peter. What do we do? And friends, if we're here, that's the question we should be asking of ourselves this morning. As we realize that the tomb is empty and the throne is filled, we should be asking, what should we do about this Jesus? Well, what would Peter tell us? Verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Friends, if this Jesus is in fact the reigning Lord, he has absolute claim over your life. All of you. All of your love, all of your time, all of your money, all of your relationships, all of your thoughts, all of your desires. And because of that, Peter calls us to do two things. First, he says we are to repent. To repent means to turn away from our sins, turn away from all the selfish desires and our self-reliance, living with ourselves at the center of our own little kingdoms, and instead turn to Jesus as our Lord. And this repentance is something that we do both definitively once and for all, and something we do repeatedly for the rest of our lives. When Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to that castle door in Wittenberg, the very first one said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. Commenting on this, David Mathis writes this. He says, all of the Christian life is repentance. Turning from sin and trusting in the good news that Jesus saves sinners aren't merely a one-time inaugural experience. Do you hear that? Turning from sin and trusting in the good news that Jesus saves sinners aren't merely a one-time inaugural experience, but the daily substance of Christianity. The gospel is for every day and every moment. Repentance, he says, is to be the Christian's continual posture. That's why it's not enough if we say, are you a follower of Jesus? And you say, yes, in 1974, I walked an aisle. Or back in college, I raised my hand. When I was a little kid, I signed a card. We're not looking at a one-time inaugural experience. He says, this is an ongoing, moment by moment, day by day. Are you repenting of your sins saying, no sin, I need Jesus instead? So what should we do with Jesus this morning? We should repent. We should turn from our life-stealing sins and instead trust in the life-giving promises of his gospel, which is exactly what Peter means when he calls for his hearers to not just, be, not just repent, but to be baptized. When Peter says be baptized, he's not simply telling them, you got to check this box. you got to go through the motions of a religious act as though getting in water will somehow save them. He's calling them to faith in this Jesus. He's calling them to trust this Jesus, to trust in his life for their righteousness, to trust in his death for their sins, to trust in his resurrection for their eternal life, and to trust in his exalted rule as Lord over all things for their good. And he's calling them to publicly profess their faith in this Jesus through baptism. Because that's what baptism is, a public declaration of trust in this Jesus. When we repent and trust in this Jesus, we receive forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
Friends, our past is forgiven, our present is empowered, and our future is secure. We have a living hope. And this hope is only in this Jesus. We're going to sing in a moment. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone. What is our only confidence? That our souls to him belong. We're going to sing, there is one gospel where hope is found. The empty tomb still speaks. For death could not keep my Savior down. He lives and I am free. So now on my Savior I fix my eyes. My life is his and his hope is mine. For he has promised I too will rise. I stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I stand in the gospel of this Jesus. Friends, the resurrection of this Jesus changed everything for Peter. Will it change everything for you? Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you for raising Jesus from the dead. Thank you that you planned it. Thank you that it unfolded exactly as you wanted it. And thank you that we can look back and see your stamp of approval on Jesus as your son, as your king, to know that you said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And even though he was your beloved son in whom you were well pleased, for our sake, you delivered him up to pay for sins he did not commit, to pay for crimes that he had not done, instead to pay for our transgressions, to atone for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. So we praise you for giving him for us, and then we praise you for raising him back to life and giving him to us as the head of all things, the Lord of all, so now that we follow and love and worship this risen Christ and this reigning Lord. And we pray that as we sing these last songs, God, would you help us to see our message isn't new. It's the same message that Peter declared that day and that followers of Jesus have been singing and declaring for 2,000 years. But would it not feel stale or antiquated? But would it feel fresh and powerful and life-changing as it really is? Would you work in us that same power that raised Christ from the dead? We pray this for our good and for your glory. And all God's people said, amen.